This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you, as always. And um, join the, during the week, please join us, uh, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, every day. The name of the show is Kudlow. And if you can't get us at 4, you can... Text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. Actually, it reruns at 7. How about that? You can catch us at 7 to 8 p.m. And here, you can live stream us over the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Heard throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And... I want to begin with the impeachment inquiry. That was big news. Very big news this week. Um, I interviewed Oversight Chair Jamie Comer, who was heading up, uh, he heads up the Oversight Committee, but he also has been appointed by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as the lead, along with Jim Jordan of Judiciary. Um and Jason Smith of the Ways and Means Committee. And one thing about Jamie Comer, by the way, I don't know if folks know him as well. Uh, Jim Jordan's been around for a long time, a brilliant conservative, very dear friend of mine. But um, Mr. Comer was a banker once upon a time. And one of the things he told me in the interview, which uh, I guess was Thursday, is that he is going to follow the money. He is going to continue to look at bank accounts. You know, you've got the nine special bank accounts going to Joe Biden's kids, in one case a grandkid, uh, as well as some friends, Bank accounts from China, bank accounts from Ukraine, bank accounts from Romania, Kazakhstan, Russia. I don't know what I've forgotten, but it's a pretty bizarre story. You know, it was Mr. Comer uh, originally broke this story when the Republicans took the House and he became chair of oversight. 
when he went into the Treasury, he and his committee members and staff, and they went into the Treasury Department, and they looked at these suspicious bank accounts. There are quite a few of them. By some count, there's 150 suspicious bank accounts. That means, essentially, private commercial banks labeled them suspicious, meaning they couldn't exactly source them and that they showed up in odd places. And, of course, that's exactly what these you know, private companies, these LLCs, were all about. They were hiding money. They were hiding transactions. And uh, that was the first clue. That was the first biggest breakthrough that Mr. Comer had, Chairman Comer. And uh, this year I've interviewed him many times. He is a very smart guy and he understands finances and probably his key message to me in the interview was he's going to continue to follow the money. Now, the FBI is going to stop him. There may be some problem with individual banks because he'd like to go directly to the banks. The banks prefer to go to the Treasury. But, of course, you get um, special subpoena power by declaring an impeachment inquiry. So he may be able to break through all these obstacles and blockades by Joe Biden uh, and his Justice Department, Merrick Garland. And and the FBI. And of course, uh, others have broken through on the tax evasion. And of course, Hunter Biden got busted this week on three counts of... um, illegal guns. If I sound a little slow, you'll have to pardon me. I had got drilled dentist dentist operation Wednesday. I actually did the TV show Wednesday and Thursday. I'm still not doing all that great. I did the show Friday. Uh, so pardon me, bear with me. I'm going to try to get it all out today. But I do want to say this, you know, is there a case question? People are asking, is there a case? Well, of course, Democrats... And their allies in the liberal media say there's no case. Joe Biden says there's no case. I guess at one point this week, Joe Biden says um, Republicans are talking about impeachment in order to distract from shutting down the government. It's the silliest thing I ever heard. The two have nothing in common. Completely separate railroad tracks. I don't know if there'll be a shutdown or not. Maybe a continuing resolution. There may not be. We'll find out in the next couple of weeks. September 30th ends the fiscal year, but I don't want to digress into all that gobbledygook just yet. What I want to say is that um, there's so many issues out there that need to be explored. So many issues. Nine family members received foreign money from places like China, Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Kazakhstan, including one grandchild. Half the money was given to Papa Biden. That, according to Son Hunter. And he said that in one of his emails. 10% of the 
various deals were given to the big guy. That according to uh, Tony Bobulinski, remember that? At least 20 calls were made by various Hunter Biden clients and colleagues and associates to Joe Biden when he was vice president in the White House. That was according to Devin Archer, former first friend, no more, I guess. Then you got senior IRS whistleblowers testifying to repeated examples of political interference by Merrick Garland's Justice Department and the FBI in their tax investigations of Hunter and his various companies. These were senior IRS whistleblowers. Attempts were made to discredit him. Nobody could. These are smart guys, veterans. And there's a pattern here. All these things kind of work together. And then the whistleblowers, remember this, uh, I don't know, well over a month ago, the whistleblowers produced this WhatsApp message where Hunter Biden threw a temper tantrum at his uh, Chinese communist investor in order to have the guy pay a multi-million dollar sum. I think it was five million bucks. And during that temper tantrum, Hunter Biden's talking about, well, my father's sitting right next to me and you don't want to mess around with him. So I'd call that up close and personal extortion. That's what that was. They did get the money, by the way, five million bucks from the Chinese guy. And then, of course, the senior... FBI informant who reported that the CEO of Burisma, right, the Ukrainian oil company, that was extorted by Hunter Biden to the tune of $5 million for his father and another $5 million for the first son as a bribery scheme to get rid of Ukrainian prosecutor Victor Shokin. Now, mind you, this was, this was, the Burisma CEO was in contact with Hunter Biden and with Joe Biden. But apparently, according to this uh, senior FBI informant, it was Joe Biden who told the guy, you have to pony up five million bucks to me and to my son. And then we'll take out this uh, Ukrainian prosecutor. That's why I'm calling it extortion. Of course, it's bribery. Now, there's an audio tape floating around someplace that allegedly proves this. But nobody knows where this tape is. The FBI has the tape or had the tape. Who knows who else is blocking it or has the tape? Nobody knows. The FBI uh, may have blocked it. They may have burned it. They may have dropped it into the Danube River. I mean, nobody knows where that is, but it still is probably out there someplace. And, of course, you know, the information we received during the summer recess before Congress came back, this guy Shokin, 
lost his job because of a last-minute intervention by the vice president, by Biden, Papa Biden. Even though, and this is the incredible part, there are memos showing that the U.S. State Department and its European counterparts signed off on Ukraine's anti-corruption reforms led by, guess who, Shokin. But Shokin was going to bust Burisma. He was in the process of seizing assets. Well, how do you figure that? Well, there's Joe Biden in Air Force Two changing U.S. policy right there in the airplane on his way to the Ukraine. Devin Archer, of course, testified that the Biden family brand was, guess what, influence peddling. Influence peddling is a theme in all this, side by side with bribery and the whole culture of corruption. And, of course, you got um, aliases, Joe Biden aliases on emails with Hunter Biden and others. I guess Joe Biden had three aliases. What do you need aliases if if you're not trying to hide something? That has to be explored. And um, the easiest one, the lowest hanging fruit here, is that Mr. Biden... Papa Biden lied to the public for years in denying any knowledge of his son's business dealings. Of course, we now know that is a complete lie. So I'll just say there's plenty to chew on here. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is exactly right to declare an impeachment inquiry to follow through on all these issues. Some of them are still allegations. Some of them have been factually proven. The main thing, I think, from Chairman Comer is to follow the money. He's going to go after more bank accounts, the most important thing he can do, and deal with these charges of bribery and extortion and influence peddling, and, of course, the politicalization of our entire justice system, the double standard the corruption in the Justice Department and the FBI. These are the biggest crimes against American democracy. This is the biggest scandal this country has probably ever seen. And you can bet that Comer and company are going to follow it right towards its bitter end. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. By the way, you know, on this um, impeachment inquiry stuff, the liberal media is doing the best it can, along with their Democratic allies, to suggest that the Republican Party is really split and divided over this. And that um, 
particularly the Senate side, doesn't want them to do this and is lobbying them against it. So it's very interesting. We had um, on the Fox Business Show yesterday my good friend Kevin Kramer, Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, who's a very smart, plain-spoken guy, upper Midwest guy, and he was telling us on the show that um, I guess it was Thursday, could have been Wednesday. Anyway, Jim Jordan, chairman of the Judicial Committee, Judiciary Committee, and uh, Jamie Comer, the chairman of the Oversight, they went across the Capitol to meet with the Republicans on the Senate side. They met with the whole conference to brief them about the impeachment inquiry. And they walked through many, if not most, of the issues that I raised in the opening here. And according to Kevin Kramer and other senators, there was widespread, broad support for what Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Jamie Comer uh, are doing. Widespread support. Encouragement. I mean, some senators said, you know, over time, as you develop this case, you may want a formal resolution in the House on the inquiry. It's different than the impeachment. But there, there was no, you know, raucous disruption argumentation, criticism. No, they were supportive. There are a lot of good suggestions. This, according to Kevin Kramer, who was a plain-spoken guy, and that was reported in the Washington Times and, I believe, the Washington Examiner, two of the conservative papers who have good sources in this meeting. So my point here is the GOP is very united around what the House is doing, and well, they might be because there is a culture of corruption, and that has to be busted. And I hope they go forward with it, lock, stock, and barrel. I'm Cudlow. I'm going to take a quick break. Outside the break, I'm going to talk to my great pal, Kevin Hassett, brilliant economist that he is. Maybe talk about Joe Biden's Bidenomics. Boy, what a failure that is. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, the smartest guy I know, or just about, is one Kevin Hassett, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. He's a distinguishing visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute. His book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism, most important book of the 21st century still is. How's that thing selling, Kevin? Should be selling great. Uh, you know, thanks, thanks to you, I, I need to give you a kickback. <laughs> but thank you for all the efforts, free advertising. But uh, it's, great, it's great to be here, Larry. It's a great book. Uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, Kevin, um, Joe Biden is out there, I guess yesterday and the day before, selling something called Bidenomics, and attacking something called MAGAnomics. Uh, 
Now, before you tear this apart, here's some polling, okay? Real clear politics. Um, 37% favor Bidenomics. 59% disapprove of Bidenomics. And then there's a new Suffolk USA Today poll um, that favors Trump uh, economy forty seven thirty six among independents forty six twenty six, and then here's Biden with a quote. I just found this this morning. The, the maganomics, meaning Trumponomics, uh, will slash taxes for the wealthy and big corporations, cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and raise costs for hardworking families. Now. Is there is there one scintilla of truth in any of that? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> you know, other than marginal tax rates are going down, but but you know, uh, uh, Bidenomics is uh, kind of hard to even put your finger on because it's kind of like non. So I referenced art history and said it reminds me of the Dada movement, but but the Dada <laughs> movement, remember, started with somebody putting a toilet in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. That's right? right, and that's what I think of when I think of Bidenomics. And, and, and the bottom line, though, is this, that what Biden has done, he's in complete denial, and that's why I think that people have no trust in him running the economy. But here's how to think about it. What he's been doing is he's been taking, like, all the statistics from the trough of the shutdown during COVID and comparing mm-hmm. it to today and see, wow, I'm a great president. <laughs> but, but you know, Americans know that, like, right before COVID, that they were really, really prosperous. And when they compare today to right before COVID in 2019, when you and I were still in the White House, mm-hmm. then they understand that they're way worse off. And the census uh, department just put out a study that showed that relative to 2019, real incomes for the median family are down. I know you cite this uh, stat a lot exactly four thousand dollars you might recall when we passed the tax cuts we would promised people they'd get four thousand dollars more in income actually it turned out to be fifty six hundred mm. uh, but we're down to with the massive increase in spending regulation and uh you know inflation that's followed from that kevin i think that real income number is a huge number because that's what people feel in their pocketbooks you know that's a pocketbook kitchen table Number GDP is an interesting number for macroeconomists, but actually, what you take home is everything. That's how you pay your bills, send your kid to school, service your mortgage and your automobile loan, and all that stuff. So, uh, your original right, you and Tyler, uh, Goodbody, and others, you you guys were talking about four thousand. So the Census Bureau has revised it up. Another fifteen hundred bucks. That's right, and, and and the thing is that you know not to be superstitious or anything, but you kind of wonder when like the stars align against somebody who's really harming Americans. You know, you know, my our old friend Michael Novak used to say that we're God's country because God keeps giving us the person we need exactly when we need him. Mm. And the fact that President mm. Trump promised people four thousand delivered, and Biden's policies have cost people exactly four thousand. It, for me, mm. sort of suggests that people are going to really believe the message because it's so obvious. And what about these new numbers coming out that shows a big spike up in the poverty rate? I mean, Biden loves to identify with lower income people. I mean, he says we're building the economy from the middle out. So you've just disproven that because the middle's taken a hit. 
But he also says, and we're building it from the bottom up, but, but the only bottom up I see is a rising poverty rate. Well, well, I guess that if you think about a construction analogy, right, it is true that you start a building by digging a deep hole. I can't laugh. It hurts. It hurts my gums too much. I just had terrible dental surgery. Honestly, honestly, this is a thing that that in our partisan angry times that upsets me the most about the data this year, because poverty is skyrocketing. Because folks that you know aren't haven't seen a big pay raise just can't keep up with inflation. And so, if you look at uh, female-headed households, their poverty rate in 2021 was 11% of them. 11% of female-headed households in this country were in poverty, which is an unacceptably high number. Uh, it was you know, lower than that when President Trump was president. But uh, this year, in 2022, actually, because it was last year, that number jumped to 22%. It doubled. And so think about it. Almost, almost mm. one in four female-headed households are now below the poverty line. And they're below the poverty mm. line because they can't afford to make ends meet because of Joe Biden's inflation and his runaway spending. I mean, that runs exactly counter to what he is saying. In other words, at some point, the actual numbers, the data, have to corroborate your assertions. But he just goes out there and tells these untruths. I mean, I want to get to the budget in just a minute, uh, and for that matter, inflation. But these things he's saying are simply not true, Kevin Hassett. Right. And, 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 you know, think about it, that he's undone uh, the war on poverty. So whatever you think about, like all the policies over the years that were meant to reduce poverty, you know, Biden in one year has completely undone it. And, and the thing is, I was reading the articles that, you know, you and I have also talked about the United Auto Workers strike, right, which I think is, you know, yes. another example of Biden's failure. But uh, in Kokomo, Indiana, they were interviewing the locals who were basically getting ready to strike. And they asked the head of the local, uh, this is in Politico, you can read it today, his name's James Quirk, not like the Enterprise, but with a Q. And um, mm. they, they just said, what has Biden done to help the United Auto Workers? And he said, I don't know, and I don't think he knows think about mm-hmm. it but but that that's why like, Those... honest to goodness i i think that this is the biggest economic failure that i can think of you know it's like worse than than uh that it was like during the roosevelt administration right they've they've outspent uh all of the the roosevelt spending the things that we did at the great Depression. that in 2019 again you and i were whining about how much government spending up over the next 10 years. So President Trump will said, well, I'll work with you guys to reduce it. And in 2019, they said spending this year would be $5.3 trillion and set it $6.3 trillion, a whole trillion dollars higher. Mm. And so you wonder where inflation comes from. If we didn't add a trillion dollars to uh, capacity, uh, then all of mm. that extra spending is just driving inflation, right? You just got to drive the price up. And that's what's happened. Well, what about his constant assertion that he's cut the budget deficit by $1.7 trillion. Mm-hmm. That's another one of those cherry-picked COVID numbers. Uh, the deficit yeah, was... I mean, where does he you know, get that? Yeah. Well, I think if we go to the deficit, like at the peak quarter of the shutdown year, uh, back when you and I were risking our lives going to the West Wing every day before oh. the vaccine, then, then you compare huh. it to today, then you might get a number that's at least like with inhaling frequencies of that. But everything he's saying, like he says the tax cuts increased the national debt by 40 percent. But if 40 percent of the national debt uh, when we uh, had the tax cuts is about uh, six and a half trillion. 
and the joint tax committee score at the tax cuts was one and a half trillion. And so, you know, mm. even if we don't assume there's any growth feedback for the tax cuts, then he's, he's off by a multiple of four or so. And, and the point is just that it, we're in this world where he can say that he's like not in any way uh, working with Hunter Biden or profiting from Hunter Biden. And, you know, mm. the, the, the news media that allows something like that, which is so obviously false now, like you saw yesterday, there, a video came out of him actually working a crowd after handing out his business card. You know, the, the, the fact that, 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 you know, it's a video. It's on video. I didn't see and, that. And they're still saying, nope, nope, we had nothing. And every Democrat saying, nope, nope, there's nothing. But I can tell you that the Americans know. And they're doing the same with the economy. And But the Americans know it because they go to the grocery store. I just went grocery shopping before the show. It's unbelievable how much everything costs. It's just unbelievable. Mm. Grocery uh, prices, you know, I, I think that in the statistics, they don't really capture it. Uh, because there's so many things going on, like they're changing packaging. Um, I, I was really angry that a pound of bacon was $8 a pound, thinking, oh, my goodness, $8 a pound. But then I got home and I looked at the package to open it, and it had gone from 16 ounces to 12 ounces. <laughs> oh, so you're getting less. And, and so they're, they're hiding the price increases by making the packages smaller. You know, every mom listening knows that. Uh, but I'm not sure the statistics are capturing how upsetting it is for Americans when they go to the grocery store or the gas station. As you, you said on your show yesterday, gas prices are up 60% since Biden took off. Mm-hmm. Well, I think American folks are smarter than Joe Biden thinks they are. And I think this stuff will all catch up with him uh, in the next uh, 15, 18 months. Anyway, uh, Kevin Hassett, thanks for sharing some time with us this morning. We appreciate it very much. Folks, please go out and buy the book. It's called The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. It's the most important book of the 21st century. We're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk to Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and Fox News contributor. Try to talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington, D.C. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Larry Kudlow, from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency and how to return America to greatness. There, I did it. I'm talking about a book by Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger, Fox News contributor. It's my favorite book read. You're getting a new book? You're writing a new book, Joe Concha? Did I hear that? Yes, and it has an equally long title that takes 20 minutes to finish. Uh, it's called Not Not Your Daddy's Donkeys. And the second part I'm still working on, but basically how, how the media has driven Democrats from the party of the little guy to the party of elites. And it, it really is just a remarkable thing to research, Larry, because when you look at where so many Democratic presidents, for example, were on certain issues and where we're at now with this Democratic Party. I mean, we remember JFK, right? He was for tax cuts, right? Growth yeah. and uh, a strong military. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Carter was a pro-life Democrat. Unheard of now. Uh, Bill Clinton made Donald Trump look like a wallflower when it came to the border and deportations, as did Barack Obama. He was called the deporter-in-chief, and Joe mm-hmm. Biden, at last check, was the vice president in that administration. And now you see where Democrats are as far as spending trillions of dollars when we already have high inflation. You see these AGs that serve at the pleasure of Democratic mayors in cities like New York, which are destroying the city as we know it. The border obviously is wide open, destroying the city as we know it. And obviously on education, everything has gone completely sideways, where we're concentrating more on sexual orientation and gender identification than we are on blocking and tackling, and the Chinese are kicking our butt as mm. far as reading, writing, arithmetic, and science. So uh, it's, it's kind of a look back of where this party was and where it is now, and it ain't going in a good direction. Well, that's going to be a good book. Joe, you know, I was a Democrat. Really? I admit it's a long time ago. Yeah, my last guy was Pat Moynihan, Senator Moynihan. I worked as an occasional research assistant. I was very, very friendly with him. Yeah, I was a Democrat, and I wrote a, I wrote a book about John F. Kennedy and his tax cuts and compared them to Ronald Reagan's tax cuts, and everything you just said is absolutely correct. Uh, the Democrats have completely changed. And I wanted to ask you, you know, now you've got this Bernie Sanders-oriented Democratic Party, self-avowed socialist and so forth and so on. But what is your judgment on the uh, scandals and how they're going to affect Joe Biden? Because there's a lot of new information this week. So Kevin McCarthy's impeachment inquiry. I had Jamie Comer on the show, Chairman Comer of the Oversight Committee. He's going to follow the money and go after the bank accounts. What do you think about this? Is this going to stick to Joe Biden? If we had... uh at least a remotely honest and objective media, I would say 100%. I mean, when you look at the impeachment of Donald Trump when he was president, for example, over that Ukrainian phone call, which when you look back on what Trump was warning Zelensky about and asking him to do was perfectly legitimate, right? He says, look, you, you have Hunter Biden doing business with Burisma, an energy company in your 
country, and I think the family is, is profiting from profiting from it, including Joe Biden, who had, obviously, the Ukrainian prosecutor fired, who was looking into Burisma, therefore affecting U.S. policy, so that's why it's important. And all the overwhelming evidence is, is there with the, with the 20 phone calls that Biden sat in on, and the fact that he went to Cafe Milan in Georgetown with Hunter Biden's foreign business partners, and the fact that $20 million, this isn't like hearsay, there's actual bank records, $20 million going to 10 members of the Biden family. I could go on, but the evidence is so overwhelming here. And if you reverse the names of Biden and Trump, he would have been convicted already in the press easily, as we know. They've done it before. Uh, but instead, that's the one thing that makes me hold back to say, well, will, will Biden get away with this? I don't. No, because in the end, you know that the Democratic Senate's not going to turn. In other words, we, we remember what happened with Nixon. He resigned because the numbers weren't there anymore, that Democrats and Republicans would have voted to convict him in the Senate. He saw that and resigned before that embarrassment happened. I can't see one Democratic senator actually flipping here and convicting Joe Biden in the Senate if the House were to successfully impeach him. So... In the end, what it does, Larry, though, from a political perspective, even if there isn't a conviction per se, the whole premise of what Joe Biden ran on is gone, which is I'm an honest guy. I'll bring normalcy back to the White House and decency after what Donald Trump has done, X, Y, Z. And now an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that Joe Biden not only is dishonest, but he engaged in criminal behavior per the polls. So even if he isn't convicted technically, he can't run on being the guy who will bring normalcy and decency back to the White House. He loses that card, and all that's left is his performance on economy, crime, education, the border, immigration, and foreign policy. And on those fronts, he's vastly underwater as far as approval from the American people. So that's why I think if you, if you asked me four months ago, can Donald Trump win in a general election, I probably would have said no because so many people vote against him. Now I think that Joe Biden has lost any base that he may have had. And if it comes down to enthusiasm, the wind is at Donald Trump's back right now. I mean, if you go back to the second debate in 2020, when the issue of Hunter Biden's laptop came up and, you know, you had these 51 intelligence agents, blah, blah, blah. And they said it was just um, Russian disinformation hoax and so forth. And Biden got away with that. But to your points, all the points you just made, as the evidence mounts up, Joe Biden's not going to get away with any of that. And Donald Trump is a pretty good debater. And he'll come at him pretty hard. And I think that's just, you know, as I look forward on this, I don't see how Joe Biden gets around it. No, particularly if we have uh, moderators that actually go there, right? I mean, but, but it doesn't matter what the moderator asks. The, Trump could simply bring it up and Biden's going to have no answers or he'll say, ah, it, it, you, what you're saying is a lie. It's not true. Some sort of blanket statement, right? Uh, so that's why I want Trump to be debating now, as, as we've talked about on your TV show. It's mm -hmm. not about debating your, the, the people that you're beating by 30 points, right? You're going to get the nomination. You should get the nomination. you got 74 million votes in, in 2020, the most of any Republican candidate in history. So you should be the favorite. But Donald Trump should be using this almost like sparring sessions for a heavyweight fight in that you ignore Chris Christie when he comes after you for whatever reason. And you say, hey, Ron DeSantis, I'm ahead of you by 30 points. I, I don't, I'm not listening to what you're saying right now. I want to talk about how I'm going to make this country great again. I want to talk about how Joe Biden is destroying it and what I will do to fix it. And to use the platform, like on Fox Business coming up uh, in a week or two uh, from the Reagan Library, I, I think that would be a great stage for him to reintroduce himself in a combative environment and tell people what his plans are moving forward instead of looking backwards at 2020. Yeah, we're going to do uh, – Cudlow Show is going to be broadcast from out there. And then I'm going to also host the pre-debate 
show. I hope you'll participate in that. Uh, your your people reached out, yes. In yeah, fact, good. find However, me out there. I'm happy to go. I will go back to California. Not a problem. <laughs> well, if you're there, all the better. If not, we'll take you remote. But, okay. Uh, I mean, I think you make an interesting point uh, that um, Donald Trump could be doing some interesting sparring right now to kind of get into shape for what's going to come. Well, no, Trump's a pretty good debater. The, the thing is... Um, Jamie Comer is an interesting character, Joe Concha. He yes. is a banker. and he I mean, before he went into Congress. And so he's telling me, I interviewed him, uh, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday. And, you know, he's talking about following the money. And that's how this whole thing got started, these suspicious uh, Treasury bank accounts. And that's where he's going. And when you find bank accounts, Joe, you can't get around that. Those are very real. They're not just allegations. They're real. I don't see how Joe Biden gets around that. Completely. And that's what drives me nuts about the media coverage, because all we hear is, well, there's no evidence that implicates Joe Biden. <laughs> well, gee, what more do you need when we're talking about bank records? Now he's going to go after James Biden's bank records. That's the mm-hmm. president's brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that reveals more and more, the media won't be able to hide this anymore. The good news is that it's not just about ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN and MSNBC. There is Fox News, thank God, and we will report it. And eventually the Washington Post and New York Times will have to follow suit when the evidence is so overwhelming, even they can't ignore it, Larry. All right. Great stuff. Joe Concha, we look forward to your new book. Presently, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Messenger. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. Other side of the break, John Carney of Breitbart News going to talk about the UAW strike and a lot of economic numbers, including higher than expected oil and inflation. I'm Cudlow. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to turn our attention to this um, UAW strike. Uh, Striking three plants in, uh, let's see, Michigan and Toledo and Missouri. And it's a very interesting story. Because it's very hard to find fault with the UAW. I don't have to agree with everything they're they're up to. But it's a much more complicated story. And it's a story in part made in Washington. And it's a story about Bidenflation. And it's a story about Biden's extreme left-wing climate change and electric vehicles. And it's also a story about cost of living adjustments (laughs) so anyway somebody who's been all over this story is my great pal john carney of breitbart news and co-author of the breitbart business digest who's been writing some wonderful stuff john you have really convinced me i mean i've been writing and saying the same thing and by the way there's one other guy who may be even more important than either of us and his name is donald trump (laughs) who's <laughs> defending the UAW and put out a white paper about how he would help 
not just uh, auto workers, but he would help working folks in general. So let's focus on the ghost of wage negotiations past. That's one of your articles, I guess, out yesterday, right? Was that yesterday's story? That's right. That came out last night in the Breitbart Business Digest. So um, they want a 40% wage hike over four years, but um, they've been crushed by falling real wages. And they're also getting crushed by electric vehicles. In fact, the entire UAW may be wiped out if there's no gas-driven cars in the next 10 years, which is what uh, Joe Biden and his crazy climate change policies are. So let's talk about this. We've got a nice leisurely half hour here on the radio. (laughs) And it's important that you do the talking because I got dental problems. I got blasted this week by the dentist. So anyway, John Carney. First and foremost, what should we be looking at? So I do think when a lot of people see something like a 40% demand in wage hikes over four years, a lot of people, particularly conservatives, are probably going to look at that and roll their eyes and say, you know, oh, there they go again, those unions, you know, uh, demanding unrealistic wage gains. But if you look at what has happened to them, uh, it makes a lot more sense. I'm not saying that, you know, they're going to get 40% or they deserve 40%. Let's leave that between the unions and the companies exactly where it's going to come out. It will come out. There will eventually be an agreement here. Uh, But if you look at what happened back four years ago, the unions made a deal. They had a strike against General Motors. It was one of the longest strikes, actually, that they've had in 50 years. They cut a deal where they would receive uh, it was quite complicated. It was 3% raises in some years, a 4% lump sum payment in other years. Say it added up to 14 or 15% over four years. This seemed like a pretty good deal. Their wages would go up. But the assumption under that deal was that we would have 2% inflation mm. We've, or, or perhaps even less. Remember, we had had very, very low inflation during the Trump era and before that. And so what the uh, so the assumption behind that was like, oh, well, if we get, you know, a few points above two percent inflation cumulatively a year, we'll, we'll do just fine. That worked right up until Biden got in office and inflation took off. Suddenly, all of the gains that were negotiated in the contract from four years ago got erased. There's nothing left of them. In fact, in real terms. The UAW members have lost uh, wages. They are mm-hmm. poorer now every year than they were beforehand. So one of the things that the, one of the reasons they want a big wage hike is they they want to make up for all that inflation that made them lose ground. And then they say, look, going forward, we're not going to be the ones taking the inflation risk again over the next four years. By the way, that's a warning shot to the Fed. Mm. They haven't convinced the union that inflation is coming down to 2%. And if, if inflation was going to be down at 2%, what the unions are asking for would be a lot. If it's going to be 3 or 4% going forward, which, by the way, you already have a lot of particularly economists on the left saying that they should give up the, the, three per, the 2% goal and go for 3%. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the unions hear that and they say, look, there's a possibility that we are looking at higher inflation for quite some time. And, if, and remember, these numbers are 
they, you know, it's the magic of compounding, right? These numbers add up. It's not just 3% a year. It's 3% next year. And then 3% on top of the 3% gain. So what they're worried about, what happened over the last four years, is they faced 22% inflation cumulatively. Mm. So when, when they say we want to raise, they're saying we need to make up for the past inflation and for the future inflation coming down the pike. And that, when looked at it that way, 20% increase, 25%, even 30% increase over four years is actually not unreasonable anymore. And I think that that's a, you, you pointed this out. It's a very important thing because this is not a case where you have a union fighting against market forces. Mm. Here we have a union fighting against Biden administration programs that one, you know, had you know, triggered huge amounts of inflation and two are trying to push the economy into abandoning combustion engine vehicles, abandoning gas powered vehicles in favor of electric vehicles. Again, that's not a free market change. It's not. It's actually quite the opposite. It's not that consumers tastes have changed and that the union should start making things consumers want. Those those electric vehicles are sitting in the lots right now. They can't. They're not making enough already. They're not making enough gas-powered cars. Those fly off the lots in a month. The electric vehicles sit around for ninety days. The unions know this, by the way. You 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 listed as you started talking uh, the where they're on strike. Guess what? They're not shutting down the electric vehicle production. They know where the car companies are making money. Mm-hmm. They're shutting down the profitable gas-powered ones because, they're because frankly, if you shut down the electric vehicle production for a little while, all the car companies would just breathe a sigh of relief because they you'd know they do, have too many. You'd be them. doing them a favor. Exactly. So, <laughs> so what these guys are saying is, look, you, you ruined our wages with inflation. You're ruining the prospects for us to earn money in the future because – the electric vehicles that you're forcing the American consumer to accept and you're forcing the car companies to make uh, require a lot fewer workers. And a lot of the work is going to be done in, in China. You know, mm. a lot of the you, they mm. can say whatever they want. Oh, no, it'll be made in America. Sure, it will. Well, you know, I'll believe that when I see it. Not if not if we don't elect. You know, there is there is a chance that we'll make some of this in America. But we have to elect a new president to make that happen. So the unions are worried. They should uh, be so worried. Yeah, and they should I be mean, worried. They, 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 this is a this is a life or death situation for the UAW. The demise of the UAW hangs in the balance here. That's the way I look at it, John. And you know what else? This is a strike not only against the big three car companies. This is a strike against Joe Biden's policies, right? Both the inflation policy that you pointed out and the EV policy that you pointed out. That has a lot to do with it. But John Carney, let's go back. Uh, When GM and Chrysler were bailed out, Chrysler, now Stellantis, there was no cost of living adjustment in the new contracts. That's, you were writing about that and I had forgotten about that. And that's a really important point that they haven't gotten a cola in a long time. That's right. This was a big concession they made because the companies were either in bankruptcy or Ford didn't go into bankruptcy, but they were on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and you know Chrysler now Stellantis, GM were in bankruptcy, and these companies, uh, and so the unions agreed. Okay, we're going to give up the cola adjustment. I think that seemed very reasonable to them in two, you know, back in 2009, 2010, because we hadn't had a lot of inflation, mm. right? So if if you keep inflation under control, then workers are willing to give up things like cola adjustments. When you let inflation get out of control, this becomes a much more serious thing. And that's what happened to the unions is, you know, just a few, two contracts later, basically, they got wiped out by huge cost of living, you know, by inflation. And one of the things that I, I heard you mention this actually on the television show, uh, and a thank you for, for, for giving us credit for bringing this up, Larry, was that uh, inflation's a lot worse in Detroit than it is in the rest of the country. Yeah, that was another one of your key points. That's a fascinating point. Why is that, yeah. John? Well, you know, it, it, one of the things is the number we see as CPI is a national average. It's always lower in some places, always higher in other places. Hmm. And it, so, you know, that's just a function. You know, a lot of times it's like how, how good the supply chains run into a place, where particular demand is. Um, and in, and it hasn't always been higher in Detroit. It was actually lower. When inflation was low, it was lower in Detroit than it was in the rest of the country. When, and so maybe there's just less flexibility in the you know, economy there. So, you know, it runs higher when it's high and lower when it's low. Mm. But the point is they got hit even harder than the nation on average by inflation. So they're feeling it even more. Uh, and this, this giving up the, the cost of living adjustment, um, ha- I think a lot of them feel like that was a probably a big mistake. I don't think they're going to get that back as an automatic thing, but essentially what they're doing in this contract negotiation is saying, we, you know, we didn't get a cost of living adjustment. We want one sort of backwards looking. So we want more money going forward to make up for the lack of a cost of living adjustment over the last couple of years. And isn't John, isn't it true? I mean, for working folks in general, not just the UAW, not just unions, but I mean, you look at what's happened here. One of the reasons Joe Biden's numbers are so bad is it's true for everybody working. I mean, real wages have fallen almost every month he's been in office. Not quite, but oh, I think two or three months uh, in in thirty. But basically, this is a national phenomenon. Right, and it's something we haven't seen for a long time. Uh, this, you know, falling real wages is mm-hmm. a big problem. And as you know, we last year we had a full year, so 2022, full year falling wages. Mm. Uh, the most, dec- the biggest decline in wages since 2010. Mm. Uh, and remember, 2010 we were just grappling with coming out of the financial crisis. Lehman had, you know, we're, we're a day after the anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. AIG had failed. You know, we were, we were the the financial system was on the verge of collapse back then. So the idea that we're you know wages are doing like they were back you know back in 2010 
it's shocking, frankly, because we're because the economy is growing. We're in a recovery. We shouldn't be having that kind of behavior in the wage uh, system right now. All right, John uh, Carney, let's take a quick break. We're talking to John Carney, Breitbart economics editor, uh, editor of the Breitbart Business Digest out daily. It's an absolute must read. Much more in the UAW. And then I want to touch upon uh, $100 oil and $4 gasoline, which is part of the UAW problem, part of everybody's problem. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. We are talking with John Carney. Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. You know, John, just to put a cap on this, um, there's one presidential candidate who was focused on this, only one in either party. I mean, Joe Biden just keeps saying, I'm the most pro-union president. Well, meanwhile, part of this is a revolt against him. Uh, But that's Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is arguing that he will uh, reopen gas-powered cars, that he will stop the crazy mileage uh, standards, that he will uh, make sure that uh, tariffs are around to stop China from taking us to the cleaners. I mean, he's aiming right at the rank and file of the UAW, John, and I have to think that if the leadership uh, at some point, they'll probably settle with the big three, but if the leadership winds up backing Joe Biden because they're all Democrats, the rank and file won't. The rank and file is going to go with Trump because Trump is speaking to them in a way that nobody else seems to be speaking to them. That's right. I think actually the UAW has a, a historic opportunity here. Sean Fain, is, uh, who is the newly elected uh, leader of the UAW in a very contentious uh, election for leadership of that union, is trying to prove that he's different from the gut, his predecessors. I think one of the things he could do here, look, I don't expect them to, to flip Republican right away, but the, mm. that membership, a lot of them are going to vote for Trump. And they can see what Donald Trump is saying now. They know he's right about how this is a, the, how the electric vehicle push, particularly if we let China dominate it, is a mortal threat to the American auto industry and particularly to the UAW membership. So what the UAW leadership should be thinking, and and, uh, again, I don't know them well enough to say that they are, you know, that siding with Democrats just because they're Democrats doesn't make sense. The Democrats have abandoned the interests of Mm. their membership and are enthralled to the special interests who want, you know, the Green New Deal. And that's not going to help the auto workers. So if they really want to show that they're different from their predecessors, they really should be thinking about at least, you know, being neutral or open to the idea that Donald Trump, as you said, really is the only one talking about this. I'm very curious what happens in the upcoming Republican debate. Mm-hmm. I really hope some of these other Republican candidates uh, you know, hopefuls for the nominee. I don't know how much hope they have these days, but you know, the guys who would like to be considered potential presidential nominees should uh, should 
be able to speak to this and let us know where they stand. Uh, and <laughs> well, I get it. It's hard for a lot of them. Because yeah, they, but, yeah, as yeah. you said, you wrote this a month ago. The, the, the last debate, they didn't talk about inflation, which is public enemy number one. With this debate, will they talk about the UAW, which is probably the biggest economic story? I don't know. Right. I don't know, John. You're going to help us out with the shows we're going to run from the uh, Reagan Library out in Simi Valley. Anyway, folks, uh, John Carney of Breitbart doing uh, the Lord's work, as always. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. Other side of the break, I want to know, is uh, is Hunter Biden going to jail or not? Okay? <laughs> I just want to know that. <laughs> Greg Jarrett is going to help pilot us through that one. I'm Cudlow. Stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I just want to know one thing. Is Hunter Biden going to jail? That's all. He got busted this week. David Weiss, the so-called special prosecutor, indicted him on three gun charges. I don't know. I guess worst case, 25 years in jail. That puts him potentially 725 years in jail, less than Donald Trump. We've got Greg Jarrett. That was a joke, by the way, Greg. We have Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times best-selling author, Trial of the Century, The Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrell, William Jennings, Bryan, one of my favorites. All right, Greg Jarrett, is Hunter Biden going to jail? Simple question. No, uh, in a word. <laughs> uh, this is shaping up to be yet another charade intended to benefit uh, President Joe Biden's privileged son. There's no reason to have any confidence that the special counsel David Weiss will aggressively prosecute Hunter Biden. Now, why? Well, because he was actually forced to bring these charges by the federal judge. Uh, you know, documents show that Weiss all along never intended to bring any charges at all, despite overwhelming evidence of tax evasion, tax fraud, suspected um, money laundering, as well as influence peddling, which in the criminal codes is bribery. Uh, Weiss is covering up uh, for Joe Biden by protecting Hunter Biden, because the father is complicit, it would appear, in his son's uh, criminal activity. And so, you know, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The special counsel will strike another lenient plea deal, no jail time. This time, they won't put the hidden immunity clause in the documents. It'll simply be the unstated agreement. And Hunter will skate, and Weiss will then pretend he's going to bring serious charges in California and Washington, but he won't do it. You can take that to the bank. What about the <laughs> what about the um, foreign registration act violations? Yeah, I mean that's Which, the most the FARA violations, foreign right. agents registration act. Uh, in in every one of these, uh, you know, suspected influence peddling schemes, China, Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Romania, uh, Hunter Biden is acting as foreign lobbyist, uh, and and he didn't register. And there are emails uh, between Hunter Biden and his partners saying, you know, we've got to find a way 
around this law so that I don't have to uh, register under FARA because that, that'll be a red flag. So he, he did it knowingly and intentionally. Well, if so you think Hunter Biden will not stand trial? He won't be called into the, into the uh, witness box under oath and be asked questions about all this money that somehow found their way into, what is it, nine kids, including one grandkid, but not yet the yeah. Ozark grandkid? Well, he, he won't be testifying in a court of law, I guarantee you that, but <laughs> uh, now that Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, has launched an impeachment inquiry, which gives uh, the House elevated status to force people under subpoena to testify, uh, he may be required to testify, although um, he would likely take the fifth. Well, that would look pretty bad, wouldn't it, honestly? Well, can you look any any worse than <laughs> Hunter Biden already does? <laughs> He's crooked as the day is long. That's what the evidence shows. So that's, By the way, um, the impeachment inquiry does give uh, Jamie Comer and the others additional subpoena power. It, it, it does historically, whenever there have been impeachment inquiries or select committee uh, pursuing potential impeachment, uh, the courts have granted uh, those committees and inquiries elevated authority uh, for subpoenas for documents as well as subpoenas for individual testimony. And so, you know, it's smart for McCarthy um, not just to leave it to the uh, Judiciary Committee or the Oversight Committee or Ways and Means, but to put together a special impeachment inquiry. Now, it's not, it's not impeachment. Uh, it's an inquiry into whether it's merited uh, that the House proceed with articles of impeachment. Well, you know, Jamie Comer, um, who's a former banker, is going after the money, follow the money. I talked to him. I interviewed him this past yeah. week. He's a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty underrated guy, Greg. And, yeah, he um, is. Nobody ever heard of him right. <laughs> until January when right. he was given the chairmanship of the Oversight Committee. So he's going after more. I mean, he's going after banks. He wants banks to fess up to him. And the banks of themselves, as I understand it, the banks themselves have filed a lot of suspicious activity, uh, deposits and money flows and whatnot. So, you know, we might see bankers testifying. And yep. that would be very cool because I think that following the money is a terrific way to go about this. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Comer, to his credit, has been doing that from the very beginning. The bank records show so far uh, $20 million funneled into a complex web of shell companies mm. that appear to have no other purpose than to conceal the source of the cash that was then distributed, as you say, up to nine Biden family members. What, what is that? Well, it smacks of uh, money laundering. It could be racketeering. And you're right, banks flagged more than 150 suspicious activities involving the Bidens as these riches are pouring in uh, from foreign countries over which Joe Biden as vice president exercised influence during the Obama administration. 
So now the question is, what kind of obstruction and blocking will the FBI and the Justice Department undertake? They'll continue to do what they have been doing. You know, uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and indeed the U.S. Attorney David Weiss, now Special Counsel, have been, forgive the word, colluding in a protection racket uh, to run interference for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. They wanted to make it all disappear, and they almost succeeded but for the two courageous IRS whistleblowers who stepped forward and and exposed what David Weiss and others at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware were doing. Uh, I have a, a column out uh, this week, and, and I go through meticulously all of the things we learned about how David Weiss and Merrick Garland slow-walked this and did everything in their power to kill criminal charges against uh, Hunter Biden. So Merrick Garland, I think this coming week, is supposed to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. Is he yeah. going to take the fifth also? <laughs> <laughs> no, but what he will do is say he can't talk about an ongoing investigation. You see, it was a clever, shrewd move when he elevated uh, under pressure, really, uh, in a David Weiss to special counsel. And then Weiss told the court, um, I'm still considering, uh, you know, other felony charges against Hunter Biden uh, in California and D.C. That allows both Weiss and Garland to say, I can't talk about an ongoing investigation, which is, is what, you know, the DOJ routinely says to avoid answering questions and to cover up their own misconduct. But isn't it isn't that BS? I mean, is there really yeah. a law that prevents them from doing that? Yeah, there's there's no law, but mm. but there there is a code of practice within the DOJ not to talk about ongoing uh, criminal cases, and so they they conveniently use that as a vacuous excuse mm. uh, to avoid being held accountable. So, um, has an attorney general ever taken the fifth before <laughs> these committees? Well, we've had, uh, you know, we've had an attorney general, John Mitchell, go to prison, uh, you know, in the wake of the Watergate uh, scandal. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I don't I don't recall an AG uh, taking the fifth. Um, I don't remember if Mitchell did or, or not, but he ended up going to prison. So, you know, we think of attorney general as being honest and honorable. Uh, the history of America suggests otherwise. <laughs> I'm afraid that's right. We'd have to go back into the 19th century, which is where the real fun was had. But they're going to say to Merrick Garland, you lied. You lied oh, to yeah. us. You said you didn't interfere and you have interfered. And, and you've got a bill of attainder on that. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the whistleblowers said that Weiss confessed to them. Uh, that, you know, he, he got interference from the DOJ, that Biden appointed U.S. attorneys in two other jurisdictions, blocked him from uh, bringing criminal charges. Now, I suspect uh, that could well have been a tall tale, mm. uh, as Andy McCarthy has called it, um, you know, to uh, offer an excuse as to why he wasn't bringing charges. Uh, 
but but either way, there appears to have been a collective concerted effort uh, by Merrick Garland and David Weiss and others to protect the Bidens. Yeah, something tells me on that subject we haven't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Much yeah. more to come. Great job. I, I agree. I think we've only learned, uh, you know, maybe a fraction or a third of the incriminating facts and evidence because it seems almost every week we are learning more damning information about the Biden family uh, corruption and the cover-up by Biden's administration. All right. Greg Jarrett, thank you ever so much. We appreciate it. Folks, hang on a second. We're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, um, Roger Stone, great Roger Stone, political consultant extraordinaire. How big a lead can Donald Trump actually get? It's an enormous lead right now in all the polls. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Roger Stone, political consultant extraordinaire. That's what Roger Stone is. Extraordinaire working for Nixon and Reagan and Trump and giving lots of other advice on the side. He's got a bunch of books out. He's got a website, www.stonezone.com. He also runs the best dress list. Just a man about town. We're very pleased to have him here. Roger, I wanted to talk to you about a very interesting column by our friend Byron York of the uh, Washington Examiner. And the question he asks, great question, how big can Trump's lead get? Okay. If you thought uh, Trump's lead over the Republican field couldn't get any bigger, you'd be wrong. The three most recent major polls, last 10 days, Trump lead 47, 48, and 50 points respectively. Real clear politics, average 43.9. And one of the new polls from Fox News shows Trump with 60% support. Uh, DeSantis, 13. Uh, who else is in here? Ramaswamy at 11. Nikki Haley at 5. Mike Pence and Tim Scott at 3. Chris Christie is at 2. All right. Roger Stone, how big can Trump's lead get? What does this mean? Uh, I must tell you, Larry, uh, first of all, it's great to be back with you. Uh, You know, I have 45 years in American politics. Uh, I'm a veteran of 13 national Republican presidential campaigns. I have in my career worked in 700 individual campaigns. (laughs) I have never seen anything like this uh, in my vast experience. Donald Trump is a a force of nature. He's a, a phenomena. This this speaks to two things. One, the extent to which he has remade the Republican Party as the party of working people, as the party of middle class, uh, as a party of those who aspire to be wealthy and successful. Uh, And also to the fact that the the tactics being used on him have backfired in such spectacular fashion fashion. It's not just that his vote share increases. It is that those who are voting for him become completely unshakable. So Hmm. not only is the intensity of his support growing, 
but there seems to be no limit. This this nomination contest is over. It's mm. it's done. Late last night, the Florida State Republican Committee rescinded a, a loyalty oath provision that would have potentially kept Donald Trump off the Florida primary ballot. So in Governor DeSantis's home state, the state committee has essentially rolled over to uh, admit the ballot position of Donald Trump. Extraordinary. Yeah. In the states, by the way, um, in this Byron York article, um, Trump is up 30 points in Iowa, 31 points in New Hampshire, and 34 points in South Carolina. So those are pretty big numbers. Um, DeSantis is now fourth in the overall GOP contest, which is pretty amazing when you think about uh, where he started, or at least where some people thought he started. And Roger, on issues, I know you're an issues guy also. Um, Byron York's piece talks about how Trump Republicans are strongly anti-abortion, 73%. Uh, 44% of non-Trump Republicans feel the same way. Trump Republicans um, more intense about parents' rights. 90% believe in parents' rights. 89% believe in uh, in gun rights. And Roger, I'll just say in, in general, Trump's the only guy with an economic growth and prosperity agenda out there. And he has been from day one of this campaign. And also his whole liquid gold drill baby drill thing which adds to it. So he's, I mean, I still believe a key part of his uh, popularity is because of the issues. This is more like 2016 than 2020. Uh, I totally agree with that. Putting aside the Republican polling for a moment and looking at the, at the trial heats between he and Joe Biden, the Wall Street Journal poll, the CNN poll this past week, Not only is he demonstrating extraordinary resilience there, where he continues to hold a narrow lead on Biden, also leading him in the swing states, but on the key question of who is best able to handle the economy, Hmm. he enjoys almost a 20-point lead. Hmm. When we get back down to it, it is always the economy, stupid. Uh, And people are, are struggling in this economy, and they think it's going to get worse. This is, in my opinion, Trump's strongest single argument for return to the White House. Um, You know, another one here. uh, So you've got this UAW strike, Roger. And um, I think they have a lot of merit in what they're saying. Right. I may not agree with all of it, but a lot of it. Certainly real wages are falling because Bidenflation is so high. And you've got this insane Biden Green New Deal climate change policy, which will ban gasoline cars sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, and everybody's going to be forced to buy electric vehicles, which nobody basically wants to buy. So, Roger Stone, Trump puts out a very good white paper this week on measures that he will take uh, to, you know, restore drilling, uh, stop the insane miles per gallon uh, references stop the uh, emissions references, and stop the electric vehicle mandates. 
That is something that no one, no other candidate in either political party is doing. He is speaking directly to the UAW. Uh, and, and you know what, Roger? In many ways, he's speaking directly to working folks in general. Uh, that's why I think swing states like Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan that were never available in truth to Mitt Romney or John McCain mm. are available to Donald Trump. I think he has a unique crossover capability with blue-collar, largely ethnic, in many cases Catholic, working-class Democrats and independents who recognize that the long-term plan for them, for the, by the Democrats, is a disaster. Uh, that is why I think Trump is, is continuing to maintain this lead in the general election polls. Mm. Uh, they, he, they no longer have an agenda in the Democratic Party uh, of representing working... And the lead guest is... Uh, I have Mike Davis uh, of the uh, of the American Accountability... Pardon me, the Internet Accountability Project yep. talking about the lawfare against Donald Trump and Rob Schneider, stand-up comic, telling <laughs> us why he's for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. <laughs> okay, terrific stuff. Thank you, Roger Stone. Folks, going to take a break on the other side of the break. Going to do some stock market work. We've got Nancy Tengler and David Bonson. I'm Cudlow. Please, much more to come. Our connections make powerful things happen, uniting individuals and communities. We are Rotary. We are people of action. And together, we turn great ideas into reality by accessing our networks, our experience, and the best of ourselves to make a difference. Around the world, Rotary brings leaders together to build new friendships and to solve problems. Like in Austria, where generations work side-by-side side to build sustainable housing and community centers. In India, volunteers run a mobile blood bank to help provide a steady blood supply for their local community. And in Taiwan, people are working hard to get vulnerable citizens the support and services they need. With over one million members, we know what people can do when they come together. Take action with us. Find out more at rotary.org slash action. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We'll reset. Join us during the week. Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. The name of the show is Kudlow. If you can't make it at 4... Just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. By the way, the show runs again from 7 to 8 p.m. And right here, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. And let us turn to the stock market, which had um, kind of <clears throat> a non-event week in terms of the indexes, the key indexes, although... All prices continue to march higher, and as a result, some of the inflation news was worse than expected. Let's talk to our two favorite experts, Nancy Tengler, 
CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments, and a new book, The Women's Guide to Successful Investing, out at the end of this month, September 29th, The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. I think it's a, it's a mystery story. No, it's a thriller. It could be a spy story. And David Bonson, the Bonson Group, uh, CIO, founder and managing director and author of Dividend Cafe. Dot com. Okay, kids, welcome. Um, in honor of Nancy's, is it a spy novel, or how would you describe this book, Nancy Tankler? <laughs> so it's my passion, Larry. It's a second edition. I wrote the first edition in 2014, and this is a whole new book. Uh, it's for women who tend to excuse themselves from the investing conversation, but, and I mean this with no offense to David, research shows women make great or better investors than men, and so I really am, am passionate about really getting, it's not David, of course, but I mean, just in general, I'm passionate about getting women to engage because the average age of a widow in the U.S. is 59 and the first divorce is 30. So they need to know what to do with their money. David Bonson, that was a not so polite way of saying women are smarter (laughs) than men. Do you buy that, Mr. Bonson? (laughs) No. I think that that most married people know that women are smarter smarter than men in so many ways. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Nancy would agree. The funny thing about vesting is uh, the big mistakes that people make are, are not at all by uh, gender. They're, they're, women and men are prone to the same mistakes, and they both deserve to hear the best habits. Wow. I'll take that. I'll take yeah. that. I was going to just ask you about that. It's like one repost <laughs> after another. What are the big? What are the biggest mistakes? That's a good thing for our uh, listeners to hear, Nancy Tangler. What are the biggest mistakes? I, I think historically, um, the research and there's a lot of research on it, but it shows that um, women tend to do a lot of research. Uh, they're willing to change their minds. We all know that about the, the old "Will you ask for directions?" in in the car question. But more importantly, um, men t- tend to be more competitive. And so they they are more focused on beating benchmarks. By the way, so am I. But in general, the the lay investor, uh, women just kind of make their decisions. They do their research, and then they stick with them until they find reasons not to. But they're not, you know, trading a lot. And that's really the difference. It's not that they have better ideas necessarily, but they tend to to generate outperformance that way. But you're an active manager. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and David and I both know um, what that means. It's a lot of work. But David, you're a less active in, uh, manager, are you not? Because you're a dividend player. Yeah, but it's very actively managed, Larry. So we we don't believe dividend growth can be indexed. It can't be done passive. Mm-hmm. Companies uh, make mistakes, start changing strategy, start doing vanity M and A. Uh, they, and that you have to be in front of that. They start taking on excessive leverage. Those are the things that jeopardize dividends. In a perfect world, every company is a lemonade stand seeking to sell more lemonade and give more dividends and profits to their owners. And it's an imperfect world where people mess that up. But dividend growth uh, requires us to actively manage these lemonade stands. Nancy, are you? I don't recall so much... Uh you as a being a dividend player yeah well we i I am we have um been using relative dividend yield uh with my former colleague tony spare and i since the mid-1980s 
So we're looking at not the highest yielding companies, but the, the to David's point, the ones that are growing their dividends robustly. And the reason for that is because it reflects a portion of what management thinks is long-term sustainable earnings power, and it contributes to total return, and it serves as a hedge against inflation. So our new ETF, TGLR, actually is focused on dividend growers, uh, and that's our track record. And then we have a growth strategy uh, as well. But this is this is how I've been managing money for the last 40 years. Mm. So David and Tony, I share a lot of um, commonalities in that regard. Tony Spare. I forgot about Tony Spare. Boy, that's a great yeah. name out of the past. God bless him. God mm. bless him. David, um, what dividend yields can you get from these indexes, or what dividend yields are you seeking right now? And where are they showing up? Well, look, the S&P has been yielding well below 2% ever since the financial crisis. Uh, Last year, when the S&P dropped 20%, I think the dividend yield got all the way back up to 1.5%. So Mm. those years in which the S&P was actually yielding more than a bond yield are long gone, and that's been a problem. And it will become a bigger problem for index investors when the bond yields are doubling or, or more. Uh, the the S and P. It's a great over history. It's a great relative valuation metric. But our dividend portfolio yields over four percent net of fees, mm-hmm. very much like Nancy. Uh, Nancy and I do, by the way, think alike on an awful lot of issues, and this is one of them. We're not looking at the biggest yielders. There's high yield companies that are called future dividend cutters, and uh, they they are accidental high yielders, right? If a stock's at 100 bucks and it's paying you $5, it has a $5 yield. If the stock goes down to 50 it has a 10% yield. Mm. No one likes that. They've lost 50% of their money, but they can say they have a higher yield. We're looking for companies that the yield is going higher because they're growing the dividend. So we're about triple the S&P's yield, and uh, we have absolutely no doubt that the strategy is more durable over time. What are the best sectors uh, for the dividend yields, Nancy? Well, interestingly, there are old economy technology companies that are payers. But, I mean, what you've seen in recent years is uh, energy companies have gotten discipline, and they've not only increased their dividends, so spending CapEx discipline, not only have they increased their dividends, but they've been paying out a a significant amount of special dividends, obviously REITs. Um, But we are also finding... Um, really interesting names in industrials and in consumer discretionary. We, we are market weight. I, I think David's overweight consumer staples. We're market weight and we're focused on our theme in staples of old economy companies that are embracing digitization because we think they will have a better chance of outperforming in the future. So there's, there's plenty of places to get dividends. Um, but at, to David's point, you want the dividend to sustain and you want it to grow. So it's got to be, you know, paid by a smart management and board who are investing in the future. And there's a lot of names, given the lack of breadth in the market, there are a lot of really interesting names in that space that are high-quality, attractive names that you can take a look at uh, now, I think, for the next move in the market. And what happens, David, uh, from a dividend standpoint with these new tech companies, these AI companies and chip-related companies that are so hot right now? Well, interestingly, I happen to believe that two of the great ways to actually be exposed to AI where they're really making money from it and are really going to make money from it, not just market it and talk about it and put the name all over their uh, 10 Qs, 
are Broadcom and IBM. And like Nancy just said, these are old tech companies. They've been around a long time. IBM is a much older, stodgier mainline business that if it were separated out, probably trades at about five or six times earnings. Mm. But then they have a hybrid cloud business that they bought from Red Hat. And this and their AI and the experimentation they're doing with Watson is a big deal. And I think they're going to be a real winner in this space. But um, I'm working on a paper right now, Larry, that is uh, trying to draw parallels between NVIDIA now and Cisco in 1999, where you have just an absolute avalanche of sentiment and momentum and enthusiasm and euphoria. And then you get a ton of other companies that are using the right buzzwords. You recall every, you know, uh, sandwich shop called itself dot com in 1999. Um, now AI is supposedly the language, and I'm really praying investors won't fall for it again. I think there's going to be a ton of companies that have no real participation in AI, no path to greater earnings from it, but are going to try to uh, make the most of that, and it's a great way to get duped. Uh, dividend growth does its best to avoid getting duped. What um, I read a lot about the ARM arm. It was an IPO this past week. Everybody was flocking to it. It seemed to be driving the market up, at least for a day. Nancy, is it, what do you make of that? Um, well, we, we didn't participate. Uh, I think it's a great company. Uh, I think the capital markets are back. That's the good news. Uh, but it's a slower-growing company, so to have it trading at an 81 P.E., uh, on estimated earnings is mm. is a little bit rich for me, um, but you know we we are focused on um, the technology names that we think will sustain through digital sustain growth through digital transformation, cloud, and then AI. And so Broadcom is our largest holding, but we also own Oracle and Microsoft, lower yielding but still growing the dividend. Um, these are these are companies that will continue to benefit. Uh, from from monetizing AI, and in fact, Microsoft has already announced uh, their co-pilot uh, Chat GPT, cor- you know, corporate version. Um, and I think I think there's they're in the sweet spot of a lot of the spaces. So, ARM, it, you know, is oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no I was just going to ask. Um, when I was in government, I had a lot. I worked a lot with Broadcom, and I worked a lot with Microsoft, and I thought they were very smart people. Am I wrong on that? No, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's very our smart, most very important smart people. research metric is management. It's part of our qualitative and quantitative fundamental factors. You need a smart management team to navigate and, tr- and make sure your company is transforming. And for many years, IBM wasn't. It appears they are now. So I think Dave is on to something. But, you know, there's been – I bought a share for my son 35 years ago – and I can't really say it's gone up all that much. Mm. Certainly hasn't kept up with the market, and I lost the share anyway, so I don't. I don't guess I care. But um, you mean you yeah, can't you find the share? Of course not. I certainly cannot. It's, it's not. It's not wallpaper or anything like that. You no, I found two share. shares of Enron in my father-in-law's <laughs> <laughs> paper. Okay. Died. We're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Nancy Tangler, uh, the author of The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. In her spare time, she's CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. And David Bonson is founder and managing director of the Bonson Group. And he's the author of TheDividendCafe.com. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with more stocks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. 
Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking stocks, sort of, with the Women's Guide to Successful Investing by Nancy Tangler out at the end of the month. CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Lockford Tangler Investments and David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group and author of DividendCafe.com. David Bonson, what what, what do you make? We started talking about this on the TV show the rally in uh, in crude oil. Let's see. Brent crude finished uh, ninety four dollars on Friday. Uh, is up uh, three and a half bucks for the week. Gasoline is now creeping back towards four dollars. It pushed some of these inflation indexes higher than people thought. Is this something's going to keep going, David? In your judgment, or is this just a flash in the pan? Well, look, it's very difficult, okay, to forecast uh, commodity prices in general, but oil more so than most, because you have both a dollar component, you know, what is happening in terms of Forex that is uh, a huge influence to oil, but you also have uh, geopolitical uncertainty. You just, there are things you can't know. What I don't think anybody could have possibly known, and I certainly didn't, and I'm quite a big critic of this administration. I could have never guessed that they would get oil between 65 and 73 for months and months and months and not buy back for the strategic petroleum reserve. Mm-hmm. And that they would basically provoke Saudi Arabia into cutting production more, uh, despite the fact that they were begging Saudi to increase production. Uh, Saudi saw what they were doing or not doing with the SPR and they reacted accordingly. And, and look, OPEC was acting in their best interest. Uh, it's just that it is totally against the Biden administration's will, which has nothing to do with American interest. And so oil prices, I, I don't know that I can predict that they'll go over 100, but I most certainly can't predict they won't. Mm. You know, Nancy, the other part of this is that um, here's Biden basically taking fracking out of Alaska and taking fracking out of a lot of the Gulf of Mexico and violating violating congressional legislative mandates for lease sales. In some respects, that's the worst part of the story. I mean, we know his, you know he's captured by this extreme climate change crowd, but he continues to violate congressional laws. Um, he did the same right. thing with the um, Supreme Court uh, decision on student loan cancellations. I mean, I'm amazed at that. And um, it doesn't seem to have taken a big toll in the stock market yet, but it's kind of out there. Yeah, and it's it's impacting uh, companies and will impact them in the third quarter. I, I mean, a story just came across Bloomberg that California sued the oil giants, um, Exxon, uh, ExxonMobil, Shell, Conoco, Chevron, because they've damaged the um, environment. I mean, it's just stupid. And I think, um, you know, we've talked about this on your show so many times that, um, you know, we don't have the minerals and the metals to, to produce the kind of EVs that California mm-hmm. is mandating. And, and we also have to be aware that the majority of those, of those minerals and metals come from, you know, the Congo, Argentina, Chile, and, and then they get shipped to China and China refines like 70%. So, 
you, you know, it's 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 a much bigger problem than OPEC was. Mm. And I, I think that's one of the things that uh, Washington, you know, they live in this fantasy world where they say no more combustible engine cars, all electric by 20, whatever it is. And it's just not going to happen. Mm. And and so then, you know, and it's really one of the things I think, and you've been on this, that has driven this UAW strike uh, mm-hmm. because they know that they're, you know, Ford lost $65,000 on every EV it sold in the first quarter. That's not sustainable. And where is it coming from? They're laying off engineers and, you know, they're keeping wages tight and low. So I, I think this thing's about to blow up. Um, all the while, you know, oil demand is increasing in China and in India, which is 22% of consumption. Yeah, and John Carney made a point earlier in the show. <laughs> if the UAW had um, gone on strike in the EV plants, they would have done the a big three a favor. But they didn't. They went for the <laughs> gas cars. That's where the money is. Anyway, thanks, kids. Nancy Tangler, good luck on the book, The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. As always, thanks so much. Folks, quick break, and then we're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peake and Monica Crowley. I'm Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're going to talk money and politics. We've got Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. We're trying to find Monica Crowley, uh, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and author of the Monica Crowley podcast. We'll wait and see if we can track down. Monica Crowley, but we've got Liz. Liz, I'm reading your article about Joe Biden's problems. You know, Liz, can we go back? You raised this months ago that, um, I don't know if it was the time of the Democratic Convention in 2020 or later, The I believe you called it the compact between Bernie Sanders and um, Joe Biden, which essentially uh, generated a kind of socialist approach to a guy, a.k.a. Biden, who was not known to be that far left, but has governed that far left. And I still think that is a key point in understanding uh, what Biden has done and why it's all gone wrong. Well, I I think that's true. Uh, Remember that Hillary Clinton blamed Bernie Sanders, among other people, for losing uh, to Donald Trump in 2016 because the Sanders voters didn't like Hillary Clinton. They didn't come out and vote for her. And so what Joe Biden did, which was smart, was say to Bernie Sanders during the run-up to the convention, hey, I need your help. I need your uh, people to come out and vote for me. So, yeah, I will basically climb aboard your progressive uh, fast train to nowhere and agree to your agenda because that, you know, that will ensure that I remain popular with your voters. And it was a pretty dramatic thing that happened for a guy who was presenting himself as a centrist, a moderate, uh, kind of trying to portray, you know, contrast himself with Donald Trump, who he always said was so far right. So, yeah, you're totally right. The, you know, the result of that was the Green New Deal, which, remember, when he was running, Biden kept saying things like, well, I'm not Bernie Sanders. That's, you know, I'm I'm not a progressive. Well, guess what? He basically became one overnight. And and the country is worse off for it, Larry. Well, that's the thing. Um, so this compact was, what, around the convention? 
or shortly after the Democratic convention? In other words, your point that Biden is saying, I'm not a Bernie Sanders socialist, but in effect, he had already signed on to becoming a Bernie Sanders socialist. Well, that's right. I mean, it was basically in July, I think, that the Democrats, you know, basically Mm -hmm. gave Biden a blueprint for what what the progressive presidency would look like. And that was created uh, by Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. I mean, that, you know, it was pretty straightforward politics, um, but it was like a a hundred page document that kind of laid out the agenda. And, And again, yeah, it's kind of hilarious that this all took place after Biden really distanced himself from the far left because the thinking was, remember, that being a progressive, being Elizabeth Warren, couldn't possibly win an election. Well, guess mm. what? You, know, yeah. you kind of yeah. have the wolf in sheep's clothing. They did win the election. So now you look at these stories today. Guy Benson has a story, more brutal polling for Democrats. And I'm looking at a story, um, USA Today. Biden's support on the economy is just about a third. It's 34 favorable, 59 unfavorable. And on the other side of the coin, Trump almost reverses those numbers. That's how strong Trump is on the economy. I mean, and Biden's running around the country talking about Bidenomics, which is exactly what's failing in the polls. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Well, it's interesting because I think Biden is kind of going back to his age-old class warfare about how MAGA economics, or what he calls MAGAnomics, is all about giving handouts to the wealthy and cutting taxes for the wealthy. And his program is more for people, uh, workers, and people in the lower half of the income spectrum. But what's interesting is if you go into the very detailed economist YouGov polls that come out quite frequently, nobody applauds Joe Biden. Literally, there is no group that is in his corner on the economy. Maybe black voters, that may be the only group where he's not underwater, but all income groups uh, and all age groups now think he's done a terrible job. And it is kind of remarkable, Larry, when you consider that unemployment is still very low. I mean, generally you expect those kinds of ratings when an awful lot of people are out of work. But the reality is because real wages have come down, and and I think honestly because he has lied about so many things about creating jobs and so forth, his credibility is terrible, and we see that also in polling on his honesty and so forth. So people don't have any confidence in him. They don't think, you know, when he finally came out and said the Inflation Reduction Act was not an Inflation Reduction Act, people kind of went, whoa, you know, that that's quite an admission because we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on things that are not going to, in fact, I would argue they not only will not reduce inflation, putting that green agenda through is without a doubt going to increase inflation and the cost of energy. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I'm not surprised that his polling is so terrible. Honestly, I don't know how you can win an election that way. Um, This uh, CNN, USA Today, among independent voters, the critical voting expands. uh, Wait, among independent, the critical voting bloc with whom Trump struggles based on myriad factors. Trump's lead on the economy among independents expands from 11 points overall to 20 full points. That's a big deal. Yeah. Why does the overwhelming majority of the electorate believe the economy is getting worse? It's quite simple. Everything costs a lot yeah, more right. than it did when Biden took office. You know, that's um, that's just so interesting to me. I don't know whether you follow it, but 
the tip pole does this um, change in the level of the CPI, not not the year-on-year changes, which has come down from 9% to whatever, 3, 3.7. Yeah. But the CPI is up 17% since February of 2021. Um, gasoline is up uh, about 55%. Groceries up 20%. You don't really get that stuff back. That's yeah, the that's thing. The thing. Those yeah. price hikes stay up there. So it's an affordability problem. A- absolutely. And we know that wages haven't kept pace with those increases. And, and you know, uh, when people, when voters uh, are told that, well, the core number is coming down month to month, hmm. that's great. But when you go and fill up your gas tank and it costs hmm. twice as much as it did a couple of years ago, or you go to the grocery store, I think groceries are just a nightmare. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't go to the grocery store and come back thinking, holy crow, how did I just pay $70 for, for what? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's amazing. It's kind yeah. of, in other words, they, the officials keep taking out, of course, energy and food to get to the core number. It's energy and food that we're all looking at every single day in our daily lives. So it's kind of foolish. And, and you know, the other thing, Larry, I think that the American people are really over the fact that Joe Biden hates the oil industry and has done everything he can to dampen uh, U.S. oil and gas production. U.S. oil and gas production is rising this year. It is up year over year. It could be three or four million barrels a day higher than it is. And if you look at what's happened to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and, by the way, our overall industry uh, inventory of oil in this country, it's at 40-year lows. Guess what? Demand's not at 40-year lows. So we are really vulnerable to price shocks. Biden took us there. Everybody knows this. So his his uh, push for green energy and, and wind towers and so forth, none of it's working as expected. It's all hurting him. But Larry, the important thing voters need to know and your listeners need to know, it's not about Joe Biden's age. This is the Democrat right. platform. No one, if Gavin Newsom ends up being the candidate, he is even more in the tank on green energy and work rules that really disadvantage employers and all the things that really have made California difficult. We have got to stop talking about Biden's gate and his incoherence. Let's talk about policies because these are the Democrat policies. There's not a Democrat out there who has raised his hand and said, enough, this isn't working for our country. Yeah, that's a very important point. But as you were describing it, I was thinking, Joe Manchin has tried to raise his hand. He doesn't get it up there, though. It stops like (laughs) halfway below the shoulder. He just can't do it. Anyway, let's take a quick break. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. We have found Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and author of the Monica Crowley podcast, to join Les Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. Uh, Monica, look, I have trouble getting through the station, too, and I'm the host, so don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't feel too badly. Meanwhile, Liz has had an open field running you cannot believe the things she's saying. Bidenomics is failing. 
Bernie Sanders is running the Democratic Party. And the neat part is we were talking about uh, USA Today polling. Uh, Joe Biden is out there, Monica, pushing hard to sell Bidenomics, which about a third of the country supports, two-thirds not. What do you think of that? Pretty clever political strategy. (laughs) Well, it's great to finally be with you and Liz. I think it was probably a deep state conspiracy to keep me (laughs) off the air, but I'm I'm glad to finally be here. Uh, Look, Joe Biden is out there trying to sell Bidenomics because it's really the only uh, area I think he and his team believe that they can actually sell a reelection on, which is a pretty sad statement, right? So you can put lipstick on a pig, but it doesn't change the fact that it's pig. And most of the American people know that the Biden economy is catastrophically bad. When you look at the polling, poll after poll after poll shows that two out of three American voters disapprove of the handling that Joe Biden is doing of the U.S. economy. Two out of three also are living paycheck to paycheck, and nearly three quarters of the American people have a negative view of the economy. So this is not something to run on re-election on, and yet they continue to try to do it. So there's sin, and then there's outright lying about the state of the economy. They are outright lying about it, and it's not going to work because the American people are living this economy every single day on the ground. But I do think... uh... Looking at the numbers, Biden's polling is worse than the macro data. I mean, the last six months, the data hasn't been that that bad. In other words, everybody was expecting a recession. We didn't get it. And inflation has calmed down. Now, last couple months, inflation is headed up again. Uh, Energy prices, including gasoline, has gone back up again. So maybe that's a problem. But I dare say the polling is worse than the numbers, Monica. I mean, I find that to be very interesting. Well, yeah, when you look at the macro data, I agree with you, Larry, that that's a very accurate statement. But, you know, people are living the economy in a micro fashion. Mm -hmm. They have to fill up their gas tank, uh, you know, once a week or a couple of times a week. Out on Long Island last week, I spent $4.50 per gallon And I have to tell you that I had a $25 gift card to Shell. So I pull into the Shell station. I go in with the $25 gift card, and I say, can you put this gift card on pump four? And she said, sure. I go back out, and, Larry, it was 90 seconds. The nozzle was in the gas tank before that $25 gift card was up. Oh, Um, Right? So the fuel costs, and we have all talked about that their war on fossil fuels Mm. and American energy, uh, domestic energy production, that drives the cost of everything up. But groceries are also up about 17%. So since Joe Biden came into office, prices are up 17.4%, while real wages are down 3.1%. So when you say that his polling on the economy is worse than the macro story, I agree with you. And there's a reason for that, because people are being squeezed. And you know who's getting squeezed the most? The middle class, the working class, and the poor. Those are the groups that the Democrats always profess to champion. They're getting killed by the Biden economy. Actually, that's important. You know, Liz, among the squeezees is the UAW. Yeah. I mean, really, 
They yeah. haven't had a cost of living adjustment in uh, over 15 years. We are talking about that earlier with uh, John Carney of Breitbart. They've been slaughtered by this because they didn't take a COLA in the contracts after you know, 2009, 2010, and that's where you see it. And there's one guy who's talking to them about making reforms, and that's Trump. Trump just issued a whole white paper on the UAW. Fascinating. Uh, I, He's the only I, guy. I, and look, I mean, Trump has broken through before with working Americans, and you can mm. see it in the polling. He is still very strong. And by the way, I think that's why I, I'm sure you saw the Reuters poll that came out showing him ahead in most of the swing states. A lot mm-hmm. of those swing states represented by or, or represent kind of working class Americans. So uh, Trump it, it will continue to make um, strides there, I think. I think the UAW thing is complicated. Yes, the union has not been paid up much over the last 10 years. On the other hand, and and they've, like everybody else, seen their cost of living go up. On the other hand, their wages all in uh, going back to the financial recession kind of shocked America. I mean, I remember when the whole, all the stories, I think Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote the first article saying, actually, the pay all in on a GM worker is 70 bucks an hour. How do we possibly think that can compete with Toyota or you know, you name it, foreign car company uh, uh, producing in a work-to-write state. You can't. So Detroit had a lot of problems, including over uh, overpaying its workforce and having too much of a workforce, too many plants and everything else. But now, unfortunately, um, that you know, the whole thing has kind of come to a boil, really not so much, I would argue, over wages and cost of living, but because the, the UAW is looking at the shift to EVs, and they recognize that their union, you know, could be toast in 10 years. Mm-hmm. When when mm-hmm. you have a declining membership outlook, which is what they have now, you're going to fight like hell for whatever advantages you can get, and that's kind of where we are now. Yeah, EVs will destroy the UAW, they, and they and, know and the auto industry. And, and ba- mm-hmm. you know, Larry, I, I, I'm writing a thing now. I mean, you could end up with this industry being basically a ward of the state because already mm-hmm. – Look at the, what that uh, the green bill, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, includes hundreds of billions of dollars basically to subsidize this shift over to EVs. Well, so that's taxpayers paying for this and basically propping up Detroit because they can't make money that way. Hmm. Monica, the um, next debate is in two weeks. Um, it's going to be another Trump-free debate, but... What do you expect from that debate? What should they be talking about? They should be talking about the economy. You know, I was stunned in, in the first debate to see so little conversation about the economy. This, this election is going to be about many things. That's true. But the paramount issue for most voters is the state of the economy and their mm-hmm. personal financial situation, job security, inflation. We've got record consumer debt. Uh, voters want to hear strong policy positions from these candidates. They already know what Donald Trump can do. Donald Trump delivered a booming economy uh, because he had a strong pro-growth agenda that you, Larry, helped to execute. And uh, me as well, while I was at the Treasury Department, but you were certainly a leading uh, voice and leading hand in delivering that thriving economy. That was tax cuts, regulatory relief, unleashing our great energy sector, and fairer trade deals. All of those things delivered the strong economy for every American, for every demographic group. So they know what Trump can do. 
they want to hear from the other candidates. Governor DeSantis has a very strong economic record in Florida. Talk about that. Talk about a pro-growth economic agenda. And what is it? And talk directly to the American people. How am I going to improve your life, your family's life, your personal financial position? That's the kind of thing, that's the kind of messaging that, uh, that the voters want to hear. So if I'm giving advice to the rest of the candidates, I would focus on the economy and, of course, the border um, and the collapse of law and order as an overall narrative issue. I mean, it is a very dangerous place in America now. I don't care where you're living. You don't have to live in the inner city to feel afraid of what is happening. The collapse of law and order and the collapse of uh, essentially the rule of law, the weaponization of government, it's all of a piece. I want to hear the candidates address that very strongly. Liz, just in 30 seconds, is it possible for somebody to break out and challenge Trump at this point? Boy, it's really difficult, and the window is closing, I would say. I think almost Trump has to make some sort of move that is widely unpopular. I don't really see anyone uh, on the basis of these debates or on the basis of the early primaries breaking out. I could be wrong. I just don't see that happening. All right. Liz Peek, thank you very much. Monica Crowley, thank you very much. Terrific stuff. Monica, next time we're going to have a special caller number. (laughs) I'm Kudlow. We will be back next weekend. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks, Larry.